0: that matter podcast my name is john harris we are going to talk today about a book that is very popular maybe you've heard about it at your church or your small group it's called be the bridge by latasha morrison and the subtitle is pursuing god's heart for racial reconciliation now i've heard of latasha morrison before Um, i've even heard of the book i did not realize though how influential and popular this book was and the organization that morrison started Um, Some of you may have actually heard of Latasha Morrison as well, because um, during the Crew 19 uh, conference, she said this. I don't know if you remember this.
1: I'm going to read this, and then you say, we lament. Lord we acknowledge that we have learned to do right. We did not seek restorative justice that benefits all. We have not defended the oppressed. We have not taken up the cause of the fatherless or pleaded the case of the widow. Instead we have mocked and punished the poor with our partisanship and our apathy. Lord have mercy. We lament that we stood by as systemic and institutionalized racism became founding pillars and structures in America and within the church. Lord have mercy. We have allowed agendas of empire to become prominent within your church. We understand that empire aims to take and oppress. We have replaced your kingdom with the empire mentality. Lord have mercy. We have formed and developed church structures and denominations while excluding the voice of your global church due to racism and racial segregation. Lord have mercy. We acknowledge the racial hierarchies and structures of privilege many have benefited from, many have been oppressed by. Lord have mercy. We have ignored the cries of children because they were not our own. We have discounted the pain of mothers because they were not our own. We have turned the blind eye to the affliction of brown and black men because black, brown and black men and women because they were not our own. Lord, have mercy. Amen. We have replaced your supremacy with idolization of a nation and racial identity. Lord, have mercy. We have not required justice. We have not loved others well. And we have not walked in humility and in our brokenness. Lord, have mercy. We cry out to you, O God, our redeemer, as the only one who can save us from ourselves. Show us our blind spots. Don't let us hide from you in our shame and guilt. Restore us to your perfect union that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Lord, show us how to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with you. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, come to me. All you, who, Jesus said, "Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." Lord, with deep sorrow we lament. In the powerful name of Jesus, let it be so.
0: I grew. Okay, so that's the clip uh, from the Crew um, 2019 conference. This is before the George Floyd stuff. This is, uh, this you know, this is earlier than a lot of. You, who are probably listening, were aware of the topic of social justice or critical race theory. so she was she's been doing this for a while, and the again, these these are all staff workers at one of the largest Christian organizations out there. Now, I had kind of forgotten about that, but then um it got put back on my radar because of someone running for governor in the a Republican primary here in Virginia named Glenn Yunkin, goes to a church called Holy. Uh, Trinity Church in McLean Virginia and he signed a statement basically committing to reading this book so I'm assuming he's read it or he's going to read it um, called be the bridge it's there it is it's Latasha Morrison's book and uh, so it's it's a woke statement from the church Glenn Youngkin signed it he's saying he's a Republican and I know many of you who'd Probably don't care about this if you're from outside Virginia, but if you're in Virginia, uh, this matters a whole lot. By the way, side comment here: I just found out something else about him yesterday. Not only does the NRA not know where he stands on gun rights, but the Virginia Citizens Defense League also does not know where he stands on gun rights. So, figured I would put that out there for those who might still be on the fence. But um, anyway, uh, I looked up the book because I wanted to know what is this book teaching. And then I found out it was very popular. And a lot of churches are using this, and not just churches. Um, a lot of even businesses are using the organization uh, that Latasha Morrison, be the bridge, it's also called um, started uh, the resources that they have. So, Here's, here's a, again, a screenshot from Holy Trinity Church. They endorse not just her book, but her as a speaker, as an as activist and a writer. Here's her organization, some screenshots. Um, we empower people and culture toward racial healing, equity, and reconciliation. One of the things they offer is the whiteness intensive, and that is not nine months without the sun in uh, a cave somewhere. It's understanding the construct of whiteness. And i'll read for you it says the whiteness intensive is an in-depth um, offering they have to understand the construct of whiteness you got eight courses taught by be the bridge educators and it goes through the history of whiteness how it shaped systems cultures relationships um, structures as well as you personally and it's values based uh, but they can add a faith-based component if you want that so um again not marketing it just to churches uh but to secular entities as well which you know i think i think of acsi of the christian school accrediting uh agency using walter strickland's um unify ed you know it's like you start looking into these activists that are for racial equity inclusion diversity etc in evangelicalism you find out they have an organization and it's like a rush to provide these resources because businesses are paying for this uh many of you who live in the corporate world you you know that you have probably had to go through this equity diversity inclusion sensitivity training within the last year implicit bias training whatever um it's it's more it's just a growing market right now and so uh there you go free market quote unquote capitalism at work even still even in this right but um you know this is part of what she offers with her organization so the book is sort of the main uh foundation of of the whole thing and so i want to go through what i think the book is about i have a lot of quotes lined up here we're going to show that it's uh tied to critical race theory and then i'll have a little announcement at the end so let's go through the book Um, she talks about her own experience in getting woke she doesn't call it that but it's an awakening i think she might even use that word but she says that she went to east carolina university and there she finally heard for the first time uh, about her african culture in an unfiltered way and something shook loose in her. Now, I remember when I first went to college, I thought, it's a miracle anyone gets out of here and still is conservative. I, I can't understand how people can endure this kind of indoctrination. And I know that's pretty common. So to go to East Carolina University and, and to have that be the place where she learned about who she was, um, well, I, I'm just saying, that's, it, it makes sense <laughs> given the rest of the book. Um, She talks about sitting in class and she was just learning so much, a sense of pride welled up in her, but then also she began to realize that her people deserve justice and she had discontent. She said she had this realization awakened, there's the word, awakened within me, indignation, pain, and a holy discontent. So She says a holy discontent, but if you read the book, there's almost kind of like an axe to grind slash revenge component that comes out with... Um, and slavery, of course, is at the top of that list. People today who share the same biological traits as many of the slave masters in the American context are vilified. Uh, they, have, uh, they have to make up for the, what their ancestors or people who just look like their ancestors did. And, and that's not a holy discontent, but that's what she claims it is. She says, I'd come to learn the ways the white church in America have perpetuated slavery, segregation, and racism. Uh, she talks about that she embraced her ethnic identity uh, and the greater the chance, uh, let's see, she would be rejected by white people. Um, and and it, so she's saying that the more she embraced who she really was, she truly was, <clears throat> the more that white people, some white people would see her as angry and unsafe and likely to make trouble. So, I mean, that shouldn't really, you know, be the case, you'd think, if you're embracing your, uh, your cultural heritage in some way that, you know, you become more a pain in, in the neck or that people view you that way. Hopefully you become a better citizen. You become more aware of, um, of just even the, I mean, I I think I forgot someone said this (laughs) a while ago, but if you don't appreciate your culture, how will you appreciate other people's? I've realized that myself, the more I've learned about, um, my own family history, the more I appreciate other people's family history, and that should be the way it goes, but it doesn't seem like it's that way, at least for Latasha Morrison here. She appreciates her to the exclusion of others. Um, I'd come to realize that race is both a political and a social construct, so she, she realized that. She, engaged in, um, she realized that she was a racist. She had engaged in white supremacy, colorism, uh, because she you know, didn't like the fact that she was very dark-skinned, um, and you know, she talks, there's a story in here, I, I, didn't put the quote there, but where she goes to a, um, uh, to get some cosmetics and they don't have her particular, in, in, in I think in Texas somewhere, uh, Austin, and they don't have her particular, um, color of her skin, uh, for foundation, I think it was. And so she says she attributes it to white supremacy. It's it can't be like a free market thing where like, there's just not a lot of people in that area who would buy that. It has to be white supremacy. And you'll see that throughout this, which is a very critical race theory, kind of derived understanding. So I I see it when I, you know, there's a lot lot of hints to this. I see a lot of what's driving this is probably related to an insecurity she has and an identity crisis she has. She says this, I was the minority in the minority as a high school junior, the black girl who wanted nothing more than to celebrate her ancestors. So she was yearning for something, even as a kid, uh, that she did not have, that she's still trying to find or think she's found. Now we're together, she says, facing the truth of our past, and it was awkward for all of us. That was in college. It it was awkward talking about uh, the past and and her own cultural, ethnic background, etc. She says, I considered my cultural isolation, considered how every time I saw another person of color and couldn't make my way across the room to speak, I gave a silent nod. It was a way to communicate solidarity to other people of color living or working in a predominantly white space, a way of saying you're not alone. But as a black woman in Austin, I still felt painfully isolated. And this is when she's going to church. I think she's on staff at a church at this point, And she's saying this. It's almost like she feels more solidarity with the people that share her ethnic identity than she does with people who share her Christian identity. And I, I don't, I mean, it, it, I could probably say a lot, but we have a lot of material to get through. That It's a problem when that's the case. It's just a problem when that trumps your... The, the the brother and and the brotherhood you have as believers and and connection you have to sisters in Christ and brothers in Christ so She says in college, as a new follower of Christ, I began to process my childhood. I acknowledge the things that were holding me back in my relationships with others, this issue with my mother being the primary among them. So she had an issue with her mom. She said her mom would sometimes call her daddy a black jelly bean as a way of deriding him. And each time she said it, which was quite often, she looked at her own skin and noticed how it was the same shade as her father's. And she internalized those comments, came to believe she was making, her mother was making fun of her. So she had insecurity from her mom. Her parents had a divorce, um, and the, the divorce, she says, affected her. Um, and she, whenever it was brought up, she would be upset and cry. So these things are all things she, you know, this book about uh, racial reconciliation, she brings all this up. And I, an observation that I have, I don't know this is true across the board, but I've just observed this in some situations, that those who fall for the woke stuff, Tend to be those without strong family backgrounds. I don't know why that is. Now there are exceptions. I know there are are exceptions to that, but there's there's usually a problem somewhere along the line. Like you go back and you find out there's a there's a bad relationship with the dad or the mom. They didn't feel like the dad protected the mom or the mom was deriding the dad in this case or 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 whatever. There there's some kind of a identity crisis that's caused by that, and that that seems to lead someone towards the social justice movement for whatever reason. I could analyze it more, but we don't have time today uh conversely those with very stable and secure family backgrounds don't tend to fall for it as much i'm just saying i've noticed that someone should probably do a study and look into it more um maybe one day i will but uh one thing i just wanted to mention so she she then she she has this sort of problem and she i i see the way that she blames the white church quote unquote as it's almost like blaming them for her problems it's this it's sort of externalizing this issue like it's, you know, the problem in her life with her identity and insecurity, you know, it's it's caused by these other people. It's caused by these outside forces. The white church is part of it. So she says when she moved to Austin in 2012 to join a staff at a white church, um, the she had a holy discontent reached a boiling point. The longer she worked in the church, the more she came to see that it wasn't a credible witness for racial reconciliation. And She chose to work there. So, I mean, she's saying this job she had. She's angry at them, and because of this, they're not a witness for racial reconciliation. And she says that Christians still refuse to actively confess and repent. Still, so Christians not repenting, not confessing, confessing what? Adopting Jim Crow laws, perpetuating the sin of racism through segregation, turning a blind eye to beatings and lynchings. Um, America also uh, continued to remove indigenous children from their homes and families. It's it's everything that's bad that's happened in American history. Of course, abortion's not mentioned uh which is interesting to me <laughs> uh labor union racism is not mentioned um you know the things that the democrat party like eugenics that's not mentioned but you know all these other things are interesting but christians are responsible for this and this is what you hear all the time it's christians fault and it's like why would you want to join the church after you hear that why i mean that's like saying let's join the Ku Klux Klan because they've changed and they're reformed and they're not racist anymore that's ridiculous no one would want to do that and if you make the church out to be like that why would you want to join it but she makes the church out to be like this. And I, I seriously doubt that the church she was working for that hired her in Austin was promoting segregation or, you know, they hired her again. They, they hired her like <laughs> they're paying her. She's not white. Right. So but they're complicit in this. They're they're part of the problem. That's where you can start to that. They clues you into the fact that critical race theory is at play here because it's these secret microaggressions, et cetera, that are driving this. Uh, that are just as bad, or, or the continuation, supposedly, of, of uh, slavery, etc. So it seems like th- th- she has an axe to grind. There's a jealousy that forms in her. She says, I was uncomfortable. I was comfortable and familiar with white culture. She doesn't sound like it, but that's what she says. She was comfortable and familiar with it, and she goes through all that. She knew their music and their movies, but they never had to learn about the history or culture of my people. Now, interestingly, she never really had to learn about it till college. <laughs> she says that, essentially. Uh, i mean she knew some things of course i'm sure but she she her awakening was college but she's blaming white people for not knowing the history of of her people that that's such a problem and and so this is this is the um there's this is where i see i see a jealousy and you know uh, if the majority of the population you know or if, if the rest of the population isn't familiar with 16 percent of the population somehow that's their fault they need to be familiar they need to be knowledgeable about that and if they're not they're a problem and that's part of the reason she has be the bridge so uh she takes people through what seems to be a conversion process so she kind of got woke now she's going to help others become woke and here's some quotes that clue you into this she says i asked my friends to explore their own family histories and ways they might have been complicit in racism Kind of an interesting question to ask, right? Your friends. You know, uh, hey, I just need you guys to look into your, go to to get your DNA done or go to ancestry.com and I want you to see if there's any racism there. Um, so we can be, I guess, the, the federal heads of our particular ethnic groups and then, I guess, have some kind of reconciliation. She says empathy would allow her to sit in someone else's pain. Empathy is a big part of this. You got to have empathy. You got to put yourself in their shoes. Of course, it's kind of impossible because you don't have their lenses. So it's like this, you're never quite getting there, but you have to try to get this empathy. Um, and so, and it's expected that white people would have this for those who are minorities. Uh, she says that uh, one of the people in her her group uh, was crying since she hadn't experienced humiliation, pain, or embarrassment because of her race. So There's a white person that she's crying. This is a weird kind of reaction here, guys. Like, she has someone who's crying because they never felt discrimination, and that's a problem. They should have felt it. They're, they didn't, though, because they're white, is the presupposition here. And together, she says, we led her to lay those fears and insecurities at the foot of the cross. We were all equal and whole. Okay, if that's true, then why go through this process, right? If we're all equal and whole at the foot of the cross, and these are Christians that she's having the study with, why go through this whole process of, you, know, you have to feel guilty because you haven't faced discrimination and I have? right? Um, Then uh, she says, we have to have the hard conversations so that we can move to a place of deep lament. David, in the aftermath of his sins, sought God's mercy on behalf of his child. You're going to find a lot of scripture twisting here. Here's one of the examples of it. David confessed an actual sin that he did. He sinned against the Lord by having adultery with Bathsheba, right? She then makes this out to be like sinning for your ancestors' sins or structural racism or something. Um, you have to lament those things like David lamented his sin. There's two different categories here. I mean, yeah, you do need to feel sorry for and repent of sin that you actually commit. But she's saying, do it for the people that share your biological features. It's not what David did. Uh, She says, there's no shame in wanting to be treated equally. No guilt in using your voice to shine a light on the history of racism. You can step out of the shadows. You can speak truth to power. This is where it's all leading. You go through this conversion process and then you speak truth to power. Then you become an activist. It's totally political. Uh, and, and what does that look like? Well, she, she, she details some of it. She says, next step is a costly one, especially to those in positions of power and privilege. What is it? Making wrongs right, which means reparations we call this kind of reparations restitution but reparations might also take the form of creating previously unavailable opportunities or closing advantage gaps for those who have suffered marginalization it might look like a wealthy white man funding a museum to commemorate the slaves such as the witty whitney plantation it might look like a predominantly white church hiring a preacher of color just as gateway church her home church in austin did maybe it looks like a business advancing People of color into corporate leadership positions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's all it's it's the the quotas, the um, decentering, the whiteness, and giving putting your money behind it. It's it's it always gets to this eventually. It's, it's it gets to this power money thing at the end of it, and and her book is no exception to this. Um, When it comes to the gospel, there's some straight up uh, false teaching in this. I'm going to read you some quotes and I'll explain. She says these conversations that she had in this group that she had formed to talk about race issues set the stage for the launch of Be the Bridge, an organization committed to bringing the reconciliation power of the gospel to the racial divide in America. So what they're doing is supposed to be the gospel. We're bringing the gospel to the racial divide. Okay. How are you doing that? She says, "The truth is that each ethnicity reflects a unique aspect of God's image. No one tribe or tongue or people can adequately display the fullness of God. The truth is that it takes every tribe, tongue and nation to reflect the image of God in His fullness. And she quotes Galatians 3:28, which says, "There's no Jew, Greek, slave nor free, in Christ all are one." Well, that has nothing to do with, <laughs> that, that has everything to do with the barrier of the Jewish law and adding to the gospel, which is what she's doing. <laughs> it's actually against what she's doing. Um, adding to the gospel by creating these these boundaries uh, based on law-keeping, ability to keep law of some kind. She makes it out, though, that for some reason this is teaching that God's image is somehow a compilation, a composite of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and you don't really have the image of God in like a white person or a black person. You need both of them to have the image of God. That is... That is anti-biblical, guys. That is against what the Bible teaches. Totally against what the Bible teaches. You are made in the image of God. It's not a question of, well, your race makes you part of the image of God. This almost sounds pantheistic-ish. This is weird, guys. Um, And it should be, I mean, just that alone. This book should be off anyone's list. I'm sorry. This is not Christian theology here. We're in a different religion now but it gets worse. She says, our Western society is highly individualized and our measure of morality is based on individual guilt or innocence. We've, um, why should I repent of racism? She says the answer to that is, um, if you never owned slaves or did anything quote unquote racist, uh, that in the Bible, guilt and shame are communal and they point to the need for corporate repentance. So you basically have to take the shame and the guilt of the group that shares your biology or your social position, etc. She says, like Ezra and Daniel have been personally innocent of the offenses against God, but they did not try to distance themselves from the collective sin of their people. He owned, um, they, they owned their part in the member of the community. So they're basically taking responsibility for their community. Now, here's the thing, guys. Um, <laughs> few things. Number one, Ezra and Daniel had unique positions as prophets in a nation that had a specific covenant with the Lord, and they, and, and as a prophet, They represented that nation before the Lord. Something unique about that relationship, guys, that does not apply to all of us in America, okay? That we, I, you know, represent my country before the Lord. Now, I mean, you can sort of, I guess, choose to take a prophetic stance on some things, but it doesn't, there's clearly a big difference between that relationship that God had with a covenant people and representatives of that covenant people who emissaries God had sent to them and then us, in a whatever nation state that we happen to live in so that's one thing that i wanted to say the other thing is i think there's a lot of projection going on here because she wants people to sit in lament and guilt for what other people have done and so they, she wants them to feel an individual sense of participation in that whereas with ezra and daniel and you see this in scripture and other places there's there's an acknowledgement that the nation has gone has um, committed idolatry and broken the covenant with God. The nation has done this. Um, and But Ezra and Daniel are saying that as the collective nation, this is what the nation has done. They are in sin. But it doesn't say that Ezra and Daniel are sitting in that guilt themselves and saying, you know, I'm. A, she, she tries to make a lot about the personal pronoun. Like I think Ezra uses, we have done this or whatever. But what Ezra is not like, Ezra clearly separates himself and Daniel clearly separates himself. And the prophets clearly did that from the people. They were God's emissaries to the people. And that's the relationship that she's not, she's conflating here. Now, what she does next, though, is th- this is the real, you know, if, you, if you're confused about that, here, th- it'll clear up in a minute here. This is where it gets bad. She says, you need to ask for forgiveness for your participation in racism or structural privilege. So that's a sin. It's a sin to just benefit supposedly from your white privilege okay that's not a sin that's biblically you can't justify this but she's trying to from scripture and then here's the kicker guys here it is right here we have altered the nature of the gospel message in order to remain focused on our personal piety at the expense of caring for the needs of others we confess we have created a gospel that is manageable so as to avoid entering into pain struggle and discomfort of bearing one another's burdens and therefore we have failed to fulfill the law of christ forgive us for how our neglect of the true gospel of Jesus Christ has allowed a system of injustice to flourish and thrive. Guys, she just conflated law with gospel. She did it right there. She said that it's the gospel is has been altered because it does not include the law of Christ. Right there. I've, I pointed this out before. Social justice advocates do this all the time. They take their Social justice law, which is not even biblical, they read it into the text of scripture, and then they say that that's part of the gospel. Okay, let me repeat that: they take their social justice law, they read it into the text of scripture, and then they make it part of the gospel, and it ends up with a false gospel because that's exactly what Galatians was about. You're adding to the gospel works. You can't do that. The gospel is about what Jesus did, not what we do. Other, if it is, then we're in trouble. We are in big trouble. So, uh, Latasha Morrison's in trouble, unfortunately, and the people that follow her. Now, lest someone says, I don't see any critical race theory in that, I wanted to show you, here's the proof in the pudding, the seven elements of critical race theory according to Richard Delgado. This is from his book, Critical Race Theory, an Introduction. He says, racism is normative. Race is a social construct. White privilege maintains white dominance. Uh, colorblindness keeps minorities in subordinate positions. Majority groups tolerate advances for racial justice only when it benefits them. Voices of color have access to special knowledge and history should be reinterpreted according to minority experiences. That's, that's it. That's critical race theory. All these elements are in this book, guys. Number one, racism is normative. Latasha Morrison says, we spoke about the subtle comments and actions that felt degrading, and I explained how these constituted microaggressions. So she drills down deep into... What people say, reading racism into things. In our bridge groups, we've explored how the soil of America is steeped in racism. So even the soil, there's race, racist soil there. She says she she engaged in colorism, uh, which means she, she essentially also has white supremacy. And she, even though she's black, she adopted the values of white supremacy. So black people aren't off the hook. You know, everyone can engage in white supremacy, and they do. It's just common. We can point to current systems of oppression. She says. Uh, police brutality and inequity in systems of education in predominantly white non-white communities. So racism is normative. Number two, race is a social construct created in order to allocate privilege. This is called the social construction thesis. She uses the white uh, the term uh, white privilege quite a bit. Um, and actually, I think that's another point. We're going to get there in a minute. So as far as being a social construct, she says that quite a bit as well. She says uh, there are two perceived types of minorities assimilated or non-assimilated these perceptions create internalized racism colorism and our own racial prejudice against other groups and one another they often determine whether a person is hired or fired and what opportunities are open to that individual in the current social construct so the social construct controls benefits um, and it's attached to race the truth she says is that race is a social construct one that has divided and set one group over another from the earliest days of humanity Again, she says race, as we know it, is a political and social construct created by man for the purpose of asserting power and maintaining a hierarchy. Here again, race is a social and political construct that has no place in the kingdom of God. She says this over and over. Race is a social construct. Uh, I pointed out before, I pointed it out yesterday, this denies the organic nature of race and culture, which I think is what you find biblically. And it makes this this artificial thing you can manufacture uh and and so it's just it's out of step with I think how we even understand race, uh, just in a um just, just a, a normal kind of natural organic way. Um, then here's the third uh principle of critical race theory. White privilege maintains white dominance. And she talks about white privilege quite a bit. Um she says that uh she wanted someone to recognize the ways that they benefited from white privilege and how that brought guilt and shame. Um Again, uh, she talks about, let's see, uh, Brooke Park confessed that she'd often been dismissive of the experience of people of color. Uh, And she'd given the system, the police, government officials, people in positions of power the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the best of the person who was victimized. She repented of using her white privilege to ignore things or opt out uh, when witnessing the truth. um, And that got tough. It was tough for her to come to terms with her white privilege. Um, She mentions it again. Number four, colorblindness keeps minorities in subordinate positions. Latasha Morrison says this, This does not mean that we take a colorblind approach to community. Too many Christians believe that the ultimate goal should be seeing the world without color, and some even pretend to already be in this holy place. So she denies colorblindness. Number five, majority groups tolerate advances for racial justice only when it benefits them, This is the interest convergence theory by Derek Bell. Here's what Latasha Morrison says, Enforcing a law didn't dismantle racism. She's talking about the civil rights laws. Diversity doesn't disrupt systemic racism. I told someone that she knew, um, nor does it kill racist abuse. So civil rights, all of that, um, doesn't kill racism, didn't, re- didn't really change anything. Systemic racism still there, uh, not going away. Uh, you know, it's not about law. It's this, uh, and, and this, this coincides with Derek Bell's theory. I mean, this is, I'm pretty sure it's is kind of downstream from him is where she got this. Uh, that, you know, those things didn't really do much because it just changed forms. That's what Jamar Tisby says, right? Racism just changes forms, never goes away. Number six, voices of color have access to special knowledge. As a standpoint of epistemology, here's what Latasha Morrison says. If you're white, if you come from a majority culture, you'll need to bend low in a posture of humility you may need to talk less and listen more. Opening your heart to the voices of your non-white brothers and sisters, you'll need to open your mind and study the hard truths of history without trying to explain them away. You'll need to examine your own life and the lives of your ancestors so that you can see whether you're, you've participated in perpetuated or benefited from systems of racism. She says acts like passing the microphone to a person of color and listening are important. Um, again, voices of color have this special standpoint that white people need to listen to uh, to get this special extra knowledge. And then, number seven, finally, history should be reinterpreted according to minority experiences. And uh, this is called today memory studies. And you see the difference between history and memory studies. History has an objective element to it, you're trying to reconstruct what happened in the past. Memory studies is only about what it's internal, it's in someone's mind. How do they remember something? So, how does a social group remember something that happened in history or didn't happen? as the case may be. So here's some, just a few things, a sampling of some things she says. Uh, she talks about some friends she has that uh, said that um, there were slaves in the South that loved their masters. And they were treated like family. And she says she was, she was just shocked. She was practically speechless. This was said to her. And she couldn't find all the words to give a brief inductive history lesson. Instead, I mean, look at the pride in this. Instead, she says, I told her I'd read the slave narratives. And that there was no love or care in slavery. I mean, this is what she says. No love or care in slavery. Didn't exist. Never happened. Can't find me one example of it. Now, that's an absolute statement. Let me read for you. The interview of Mrs. Mariah Hines, born July 4th, 1835, in Southampton County, Virginia. She was a slave on James Pressman's plantation, and the interview was conducted March 23rd, 1937, by the Works Project Administration. And um, I will read it to you, uh, just a portion of it. Not only, she says, was Master good, but his whole family was too. When the weather was good, we worked in the fields and on other little odd jobs that was needed done. We slaves would eat our breakfast and go to the fields, dare, won't, no hurry, scurry. Lots of times we uh, got in the fields and the other slaves had been in the field a long time. There was times, though, we had to get to it early too, especially if it had been rainy weather and the work had been held up for a day or so. Master didn't make us work at all in bad weather, neither when it got real cold. The men might have to get in fire, wood, or something of that sort, but no all-day work in the cold, just little odd jobs. We didn't even have to work on Sundays, not even in the house. Master and the preacher both said that was the Lord's day, and you won't suppose to work on that day. So we didn't. We cook the white folks' uh, vittles, it's food, on Saturday and lots of times they ate cold victuals on Sundays master would sometimes ask the preacher home to dinner you plenty welcome to go home with me for dinner but you'll have to eat cold victuals, because ain't there no cooking on Sundays in my house lots of times we slaves would take turns on helping them serve Sunday meals just because we liked them so much we hated to see Missy fumbling around in the kitchen all out of her place We didn't have to do it, we just did it of our own free will. Master sometimes gives us a little money for it too, which made it all the better. Master and Mrs. was so good to us, we didn't mind working a little on Sundays in the house. Master had prayer with the whole family every night, prayer for us slaves too. Any of the slaves that wanted to join him could, or if they wanted to pray by themselves, they could. And it goes on and on and on. And right about now, I hope that you who are listening are offended by Latasha Morrison. Absolutely offended. That she would minimize the lived experience of a minority person in the United States who was in slavery. Latasha Morrison was never in slavery, but she minimizes the experience of some people who were because it doesn't fit her critical race theory paradigm. That's disgusting, guys. And I hope you see it for what it is. And she accuses those. And in this case, I guess it's a white person who ended up, who who defended the idea that there were slaves that had this kind of a relationship with their master. Um, which, by the way, bibl- we, we get into the whole biblical <laughs> angle to this as well. I mean, if there there, I, w- I would wonder, Latasha Morrison, if there's no slaves in America who ever experienced that in biblical times, uh, I don't know, maybe the book of Philemon. Is there. Is there a possibility that that's even possible? What about in Hebrew slavery was that possible? I mean, can can is it always just pure abuse and that's all slavery ever is and can be uh in the experience of a master-slave relationship? Well, if that's the case, then we have a problem with our Bible. Not just American history, we have a problem with our Bible and I hope you see it, guys. It's absolutely disgusting. This it, all credibility is gone from Latasha Morrison. Uh, if that's what she actually thinks. And she says that she studied it. She doesn't have time to give a history lesson to this person. Well, she would have had to give a history lesson to more than just that person. She would have had to give a history lesson to Maria Hines, or Mariah Hines, depending on how you pronounce her name. Anyway, you can find this stuff online, by the way. It's very easy. Just go to the Slave Narratives, Works Project Administration, read them. They didn't all have this experience. Some of them had terrible experiences with their master's. But not all of them did. And that's what critical race theorists want you to think. Um, no lover cared in slavery, she says. The majority of cultures must understand non-white perspectives and the truth of historical narratives. There it is. Standpoint epistemology applied to history. The monuments, she says, at Stone Mountain, these are Confederate monuments, speak a kind of false history, justifying the Civil War and continuing to inflict pain on generations of African Americans, including me. Well, these are memorials, guys, when you look at most of these monuments. They're memorials to men who lived, who sacrificed, sometimes to mothers. I saw the mother's monument was taken out of Raleigh. Um, and it's it's a sad thing to me because you look at the um, inscriptions that the people who put them up put there so that you would know what you're looking at. The, they're the interpretive markers. And it's just glossed over, ignored. Can't be for bravery. Can't be for... I don't know, camaraderie, fighting for home, sacrifice, can't be for any of those things. It's just justifying the Civil War and inflicting pain on African Americans. She says, Christopher Columbus and his people oppressed the natives, stole their resources, and brought disease that disseminated the native populations, yet we celebrate Columbus Day as a national holiday. There you go, Christopher Columbus was responsible for everything that came after him. The conquistadors and what they did. It's Columbus's fault. Francis Scott Key, the slave owner who'd written the Star Spangled Banner, she says, uh, has a racist verse that says no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of the fight or the gloom of the grave. And um, there's, there's a number of possibilities for why this line was the way was, uh, he included this in one of the verses of Star Spangled Banner. But it is not necessarily because he's a racist and he's like, we just want to kill slaves. No, he's saying that the Americans are going to fight those. And here, I'll give you some possibilities. Those who are slaves because they're part of the less free British um, uh, they're citizens of Britain. And the word was used not just about African-Americans in the United States, guys. The word was used uh, to talk about civil slavery. It was, it was used quite broadly. So that is a possibility. Or it could be the fact that the British had former, former slaves uh, in one of their regiments. And he's talking about them and how the Americans are going to defeat them. But it's not justifying slavery in this verse. It's not uh, saying that he has a desire to kill slaves because of the fact that they're slaves, or hirelings. Um, the British uh, also would hire out soldiers sometimes. So the, 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 she's putting the worst possible spin on the Star Spangled Banner and calling it racist. And then uh, she says, as I read, uh, oh, the Declaration of Independence, there you go. Uh, she's up, People were upset that Facebook had flagged it as hate speech. Um, a meme that included that, and then she said, but had they considered the language of it, had they considered the context of the founding document? The founding fathers weren't saying that all God's children were created equal. They were saying that some landowning men of European descent were created more equal than others. Right. Um, if you read the Declaration of Independence, and the poetic flourish at the beginning is not the most important part of it, by the way. I know many don't seem to realize that. Uh, but The all men are created equal is defined later in the document by going through the chain of abuses that Great Britain um, put on the citizens of the United States. And the, the point was supposed to be that you're not treating us like British subjects, British citizens. You're making war on us. We are like you. We are created equal like you and it was on a civil level, and it did not include, it wasn't egalitarian, it wasn't about the, it didn't mean that we just needed to um, demolish every hierarchy, and that's what the founding fathers were after, that's not what they were after, it's very specific if you read the document what they're talking about, and I would encourage Latasha Morrison to go read it again. Um, The founding fathers, uh, let's see, okay, the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, she says, in the Constitution of the United States, we were called three fifths of a human. That's not true. Um, they were. It was for purposes of representation that slaves were counted um, as three fifths, but they weren't. It wasn't. It wasn't like they're they are valued at three fifths of a human. It was uh, for purposes of representation. They're going to count for three fifths of, of a human because in the South, uh, where there were more slaves, uh, they wanted full representation for the slaves um because they were humans that's argument was made and then in the north um in some states at least uh, they wanted less representation so they had more political control that's the moral element really wasn't there like people think so i want to read for you this um because she she says this it's interesting here's her experience and gives you an idea of kind of how she she works uh (laughs) and and i I find it manipulative language she uses she says when i arrived um at a plantation A weight settled over me. I walked toward the plantation house, and within seconds, sweat poured out of every pore of my body. There was no shade, no breeze, only a heavy, hot oppression. As bad as the heat was, oh, the bugs. Mosquitoes landed between the sweat beads on my arms, sucking me dry. The crickets raised a ruckus in the fields, on the steps of the plantation. Some cockroaches the size of prunes ran under the floorboards, and tucked away in one of the corners was a black and yellow spider the size of my fist. I walked up onto the porch and stood there quietly in the midst of the bugs and the heat. Looked across my ancestors' concentration camp and imagined what it must have been like to work those fields. Now, I don't know if she's read someone like Mariah Hines and her experience, but there, I mean, you can go read the slave narratives and you can find the bad examples, you can find the good examples. Um, But this was life for everyone before air conditioning and uh suburban living. I mean, we everyone had to contend with bugs more. And anyway, um, she said uh, she considered the beatings, the separations, the generations who had been born, lived, worked, and died there. Her imagination uh, was no match for the truth, though. A guide met her, told her the facts. Slaves were treated like animals, and they slept on top of one another, and commonly chained to, to the floor at night. So they couldn't escape. She didn't hear that the slaves of Louisiana were well fed or treated like family. The guide didn't tell us that the slaves were grateful for their education or their religious conversion. Instead, he told us the truth about forced labor, beatings, rapes and murders. And this is what she wants everyone to think all of slavery was. That's that's it. Now I don't know about this particular plantation. She's ta- talking about, I don't know what happened there exactly, but you can you get a sample for the the manipulative way that she I mean everything goes into how bad it was for you know the the sweat and the mosquitoes. Um, everything um, is this experience of oppression. And that's the only thing you're allowed to believe. You cannot have any kind of nuance in your belief about that. Uh, or else uh, you're, I guess, a racist in her mind. So um, this, this kind of acid eats uh, at the founding fathers. It eats at the founding documents. It eats, and then she, she shows you that. It eats at everything. And uh, yesterday, I know I had posted a video. I was out in Richmond and I showed the Monument Avenue and the Robert E. Lee Monument specifically and what's happened there. And I talked about uh, how um, this mem- these memory studies and, and this re- revisionism, it's a form of revisionism, is completely changing the way, the perception that people have of someone like a Robert E. Lee. They're taking sources that weren't taken seriously for good reason. And now it's, it's, it's orthodox opinion. You may not deviate from it. Robert E. Lee beat his slaves, and to think otherwise means you are insensitive and racist or something like that. Well, I had recommended uh, some books last episode, at least one I know, uh, which I think is on my shelf by, uh, it's the um, Robert E. Lee by um, Douglas Southall Freeman, but uh, I wanted to recommend this, I forgot that someone had sent me this, Robert E. Lee for Kids, Robert E. Lee, a history book for kids uh, by Ann Wilson-Smith. And so I just wanted to plug that because uh, it was sent to me. Uh, and uh, she um, uh, writes for uh, Shotwell Publishing is where you can find this. And, and and it's a history book for kids. It's got illustrations and stuff. Uh, and it just talks about the character of Robert E. Lee, who he was. Um, and so if you have kids and you want uh, that's a, to them to know the, some of the truth about that particular historical figure, then you can go check that out. Uh, so wanted to plug that at the end here. Um, in closing, though, um, I don't do this to drag you guys down. I do this to provide resources for you because I know a lot of churches are using Latasha Morrison's book. This will help you, I think. Um, if you're a patron, you'll have access to this slideshow, and it it'll outline the specific quotes that you and the page numbers, and you can go to them and you can you can see the parallel. Here's critical race theory. Here's what Latasha Morrison says. And so if someone says, this is a great book, you say, well, that's critical race theory. And if they say, prove it, you can prove it. So that's that's more the point of this. We're gonna do some, um, some more of this because I think repetition is good. The more you understand critical race theory uh, or by repeating those principles over and over, the better equipped you are to argue this in your local setting and at your church. And, and one of the things that I've realized this week is that within the next few years, there's gonna be a huge demographic shift in pastors. There's a lot of pastors are retiring and young people are gonna be taking over. And we need to be prepared at our local church levels to be able to not accept someone uh, who is on board with Latasha Morrison's views, uh, a woke pastor. Either raise someone up from within the church and carry on the legacy of the good pastor you had, or um, find someone who you know for a fact does not agree with critical race theory. And we're gonna, I'm gonna give you some more tools on this. This is the beginning of these steps, but I've just been convinced I need to give you more tools, and we got some great tools coming up, let me tell you. So uh, look forward to that.